Welcome, everyone, to the expert podcast series run by UNESCO's Inclusive Policy Lab. This series, which I've had the pleasure to moderate on a number of occasions, introduces listeners to experts from across sectors and countries as they discuss how we can build back better. In other words, how we can reset the world in a fairer and smarter way after the COVID-19 pandemic. Today's um, podcast will focus on data issues. Um, what kinds of new data are emerging from new technologies and new economic and social practices? How do those new kinds of data and the uses associated with them reshape the world? How does it drive new modes of development and growth? How does it help us to understand things? And perhaps sometimes because of the way in which data systems operate, how does it get in the way of understanding things? And cutting across it all is our key concern in the Inclusive Policy Lab, how to make these changes work for everyone inclusively and help to reset more equitably after COVID. Our guest today is James Ingram, CEO of Splashlight and Telmar and co-founder of Live. His business is rooted in data and his expertise lies in the ways data fuels creativity, innovation and business growth. We are also, and probably points of the conversation will come back to this, uh, working together with James from UNESCO's perspective, building a new partnership to advance the field of what we will be proposing to call digital anthropology, which will be one way of thinking about all these issues, not from the perspective of social inclusion or social policies specifically, but from the broader question of how the digital world is reshaping social beliefs, social practices, narratives, ways of relating to the world. And I hope that this podcast will um, give you the desire to keep in touch with what we're planning to do and we'll be starting to do in the course of this year on digital anthropology. James, welcome and thank you very much for being a guest on this podcast. Thank you, John. It's a, it's a privilege to be here. I'm John Crawley, UNESCO's Chief of Research Policy and Foresight and, as already stated, your host for this podcast. So first, uh, James, I'd like to talk about data culture, which is obviously a broad and rather vague term, just a convenient way of labeling a whole bundle of issues. Um, availability of data is one thing. It depends on technical systems and codings and the ability to collect signals. The effective use of data is also critical. And in that respect, the current volume and pace of data production is both an opportunity and a challenge. It dictates a much faster speed of analysis and a much higher capacity to engage with data. The private sector um, has seen massive investments in such capacity uh, in data marketing and in many other parts of the economy, labeling data as assets and leveraging significant financial flows in connection with those assets and building data culture within companies to accelerate application of analytics, amplify the power of data and fuel growth. Other sectors lag behind and often the public sector is lagging behind the private sector in this respect. So the first question I'd, I'd like to ask you is precisely about the value of data. Where does its value come from? Why does it matter? And how do the cultures we connect to data matter? Well, first, I, I really uh, agree that how the, how significant the impact of data is just logarithmically changing every day. 
but I guess for, for me, uh, to even just to begin to answer those, those three questions, I break that into two big sections in my mind. You know, there's data that is agnostic to, to people. You know, it's about a business, it's about profits, it's about uh, where things are, understanding whether that's a, a government, a business, anything. It's not about people's behavior. Then you have data about people and people's behaviors. So I, I see them very, very differently. Um, and I'm fiercely, in, obviously, I guess just to go back, the ones that are not about people, they don't frighten me as much because or, or have me that concerned. It's pretty obvious why understanding and data drives culture, the culture of that is important. I think where my focus is and where I can be more useful in, in this discussion is around the data about people and how that culture is the, the frontier that, that I'm most interested in. Because that's where you, you move beyond what people are doing or where they're doing it or, or when they did it, but why. <clears throat> and I think that this is where the fundamental opportunity is. The culture of data about people, about who we are and, and why we do the things we do, that's where there's real value because the world is never going to go back to being not digital. Living in a digital world, this culture, if you're a leader of, of people, if you're responsible for people, if you're creating things for people, if you're living among people, then understanding that. And so it's this theme, and I think I'll probably answer a lot of this as we go through it, and you stop me because I'll go on a, on a rift because I'm quite passionate about it, is empathy. And that's the power and importance of the data culture about people, is it's, it's enhancing our ability to have empathy. And I think that's why it matters so much. And, and investing in that, regardless of the sector of business or industry or, or leadership you're in, is, is, is core is really understanding that, how do we use that data to have better empathy? Interesting answer, because it, it, um, it, it divides the world in a way that isn't, um, isn't that obvious. I mean, let me take a couple of examples. At one level, um, temperature time series are not very connected to what people do and why they do it. You, you use various kinds of instruments, you measure temperature, you uh, produce data from that, and you can do all sorts of statistical analysis of that data to um, analyze things like the existence of a warming trend or the existence of variability or whatever. But of course, the reason we do it, um, at least today increasingly, is because we care about the implications of doing it. Uh, we care, for instance, about the consequences for vulnerable populations, implications of sea level rise, perhaps changing patterns of agricultural production and so on. So there's, there's that intimate connection between the very objective forms of data that we've been collecting for a long time, but that we maybe envision differently these days and um, the things that concern people. Similarly, um, we increasingly GPS track all kinds of animals. And we do it for reasons that are connected to why we care about those animals. We want to track the Siberian tiger using GPS tracking and satellite observations and so on, because we're worried it'll go extinct. And we want to design uh, effective policies to ensure that as a, as a subspecies of tiger, it survives. Um, so in, in a sense, even in those very objectivistic data systems of which the world is full, um, 
the human angle is always very present. We're studying these things because we care. Does that break down your distinction or is it is it just um, an interface we have to manage, given that, of course, the data about temperature or tigers is not directly about the behavior of people? Yeah, I, I don't think I don't think it breaks down my 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 viewpoint. And the reason is, I think that there's obvious statistics that we, we've tracked, whether we did it sophisticated in a sophisticated manner or we just paid attention. You know, the weather, if you, you, you were, you know, 400 years ago and you, you were in charge of a village, you paid attention to the weather. You, 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 that's what you did. So uh, we haven't gotten more sophisticated in, in paying attention to the weather. And uh, can we react a little earlier about it? Yes, but does it change the fact that if I'm leading a village or I'm looking after a village, that I'm going to pay attention to the weather? I'm just better at it. What I'm referring to is how digital is changing behaviors. It's like another kind of weather pattern. So if I'm a leader, I worry about the weather. I worry about because I got to grow my crops. I got to make sure I can care for my village that they're all happy. But there's a new variable in the world I got to worry about, and that's the digital presence. So I think what I'm trying to say is, yes, there's tr traditional data that you pay attention to to do a better job of what we already do. That to me is is very well played out, and it's just it's it's on the tail end of innovation, and you're just going to continue to enhance the toolkit to do a better job of what you already always track. I'm talking about how our world is shifting, and uh, the, who we are as people is changing, and what are those signals we got to pay attention? To? What's the new things a leader's got to worry about? So that's why I'm excited about that frontier and why I bifurcate these types of data because one is well underway and, it, and it, it, there's so much innovation and billions and billions and billions of dollars heading down that path. They're gonna figure it out. I'm about pioneering this new empathetic use of data, ethical use of data, so that we become more aware of the new signals. What's the new kinds of things that we gotta worry about? Uh, so I think that's why I don't, I don't feel it breaks down I guess in my mind, I almost, John, see a, um, an illustration I could use. I'm always fascinated at, at neonatal care because the doctor can't get the patient to tell them anything, right? They can't. An adult, caring for an adult, yes, that's amazing too. But you can talk to the adult. You can really work out how they're feeling and what they're doing. And, and your care becomes a, a little quicker to get to. Neonatal care, this infant can't tell you anything. So you really have to pay attention to signals and you have to really pay attention to uh, indications and symptoms and, and it's not easy. And so I think in that way, this is the kind of care a leader has to face because you can't interview everybody in a digital world. You can't get to all that. So it's that kind of, of clues that I'm talking about when I talk about this empathetic is desire to understand groups of people better and the, what they're facing. Thanks. I, th I think that really uh, clarifies the uh, the distinction you started with and, and, and thanks for um, specifying that. So um, you, you mentioned one key concept to mm -hmm. define the kind of data culture that's needed for this to work mm -hmm. uh, in acceptable ways, which is, which is empathy. Um, as, as a motivation, as a criterion for assessment. What, what based on, on your experience in the private sector, including experience of bad practices that you've observed 
uh, perhaps over the years. Um, what, what does an empathetic data culture look like within an organization? What does it take in terms of business practices and structures and rules and uh, methods of work uh, that really allows you to distinguish an empathetic data culture? Might not be perfect, but at least yeah. having the right aims and going in the right direction from one that either through some kind of deliberate malice or more likely through failure to pay attention is the opposite yeah. of that. What would the key uh, distinguishing mm. marks be of a genuinely a, empathetic data culture? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. I think um, you know I think these cultures are are evolving and, and new. You know I, I think they're they're not well baked. So I think there's going to be a, a lot um, uncharted to go through and determine that. But I, I guess in many ways, when I think about it, we, we could model it over what an empathetic culture and you take the word data out looks like, mm. and it would probably be very similar. You take the word data out, an empathetic culture means, you know, the old classic Stephen Covey, uh, saying what's his fifth habit, I guess is, uh, I think it's the fifth one is seek to understand and then seek to be understood. And that's probably the theme. And so you, if you're an empathetic culture, you're focused on understanding the audience, the person, the group of people first. And then you seek to be understood as, as the leader or as the, uh, the person creating what, what they're looking at, whether that's a product, whether that's a thing. And, and it's, it's interesting that as I'm thinking about this, that's how digital anthropology is most widely used. And it's used in the empathy thinking about a product design. And Apple's been using digital anthropology for, for a while in their product design. So what is it like? Like I could pick up this, this iPod, you know, the earbud case, you know, what's it like to interact with it? And so the basis of digital anthropology in product design is really putting yourself in the consumer shoes, consumer centric. How are they going to use it in their daily life? What's it like to use it in their daily life? And we want to model that empathetic approach to product design that digital anthropologists have brought or to UX design to, to every aspect of life, because there's this opaque world in a digital world, because you have to be ethical. You can't just look at everything, you can't invade people's privacy. So there's this opaque nature, hence that comparison to needle-natal medical care, where it's a, there's this opaque person they can't talk to you don't know exactly what's going on so you've got to remain private if you violate privacy it's not opaque you can see everything that everybody's doing but if you're going to maintain privacy and do it ethically you've got to be able to have that ability to project empathetically and find ways of doing that and uh and and do that so i think it's the culture of of the same as if it was led with empathy but you were data and and, and how i would see that that running Thanks. At one level, none of nothing of what you were saying really divides, draws a line between the public and private sector, in theory yeah. at least. But yeah. in practice, as we know, the public sector has uh, specific constraints and habits. There's a um, an ingrained desire to segment data systems, for instance, to avoid sharing operational data from different uh, public services, often for reasons connected with data protection concerns. A classic example in nearly all countries uh, is uh, the inability of um, uh, the Social Security Administration to ac access tax data and vice versa. 
there are some exceptions. Sweden is a famous exception of very integrated data systems because they, there's a different public culture. But generally speaking, there's a desire to segment. There is suspicion, perhaps greater suspicion from citizens than from consumers uh, with respect to how their data is used. And then, of course, there are other issues about under-resourcing and conservatism and very slow procurement that means that the public sector tends to lag behind um, private sector best practice, probably by a, by a whole technological cycle, 10, 15 mm -hmm. years in mm -hmm. practice. So what, what would you regard as the, the key uh, positive or negative lessons that the public sector could learn? Because, of course, from a UNESCO perspective, we're really interested in our ability to talk to governments in useful ways. And one of the things we'll be wanting to do, uh, in, including through the Digital Anthropology Initiative, is precisely see how we can inform policy level thinking by building on um, what uh, this new discipline as we structure it will uh, will make available. So what would your one, two, three key lessons for the public sector to think about be? One, I think um, understanding their citizens' digital lives is imperative. If, if you're going to create legislation and, and and really understand your citizens, you've got to also be able to ethically know their digital lives and 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 what how that's affecting your 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 country, your state, and your citizens. Um, and and what I mean by that is, you know, there's there's these clear outcomes that happen when knowledge is disseminated. Um, you can have a culture or cultures where people are quite happy and discontent can come very quickly when they can be aware of what's happening outside their country. So that's just one small way that you can see what the digital world and access to data and in real time can do for a country. And if you're their leaders, that can create a level of, of paranoia for you mm. because uh, you're trying to create a, a peace and you want them happy. And if you, what you think to run a country makes them happy, but it actually doesn't make them happy. But then you, you come into the classic things about power. It's just holding on to power. And, and, and that's another issue. And I won't go down that path, but I think that's one thing it's, you, you really need to understand the digital world. And if they don't have strong advisors who are focused on that with the toolkit to do that ethically, they're gonna make bad decisions and they're not gonna be able to really maintain peace and, and security and, and happiness for their citizens. I think the, um, a, a second thing is, is notably in the public sector, it doesn't have the same kind of competition pressure that the private sector has where if you're not efficiently using your capital, you, uh, you know, you, you, you don't make it, you know. But I do think countries that use GDP as a way to create pressure are forced to be efficient. And how are governments helping to improve the economy? And their own efficient use of their capital uh, as a government can contribute to a, a strong growing GDP because the money can get put towards where that needs to be. Is that proper training? Is it better education? It, what do you need to create a, a better GDP out of your country rather than spending money governing the people? So efficient use of the data, I think can, can be economically beneficial for a government uh, and reduce bureaucracy and speed. 
Therefore, that capital it has, which is fixed because it only comes from taxes, your government's income is fixed. And if you want to increase your income, you got to increase your GDP. And so I think from an economic point of view, uh, that's that's something that that governments tend to be challenged by, bureaucracy. So I think can help reduce bureaucracy to really be a data-focused culture, as well as how do you ec economize on the data. Um, and I guess third, Third, I think it's it's what I said. It's empathy. It's empathy. It's it's how do you use data to get your citizens talk back to you? You know how how do you how do you create uh, this this ongoing town hall effect in your government? And you know a lot of times social media is doing that, right? Twitter, um, Facebook, Instagram. You know, in a way, it's 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 a dynamic town hall. It's happening all the time. You know, you're, you're hearing what they say. But it, it, is it getting used in that manner? So I think the more sophisticated governments thinking about it and less being scared about it um, can, can do something differently. So I think those are three fundamentals that, that, that I see in the public sector um, that, that are very interesting to me that, uh, you know, as we look at this program we're doing with UNESCO, you know, there's gonna be incredible amount of opportunities for these beautiful research programs and these scientists. And, and so I think you and I and, and the organizations are very excited about things like this. You know, imagine assigning a team of PhD students to, to study this, work with some governments on this and create some interesting frameworks for, for the future uh, to, to create a more empathetic government. Um, and, and, you know, so I, I'm excited about those kind of things, John. And I think that's, that's why these discussions are so, so interesting to me. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, what's interesting, of course, um, looking at from a looking at it from a public sector perspective, um, is how um, statistics, which is very literally the science of the state, that's where the word comes from, um, long predates modern data systems. Right. Um, yep. And has certain characteristics that, uh, really, for for historical and institutional reasons, go against the grain of what you were suggesting as the lessons. Um, because statistical systems are primarily top-down, because they were designed that way in the 18th and 19th century, and they're typically um, uh, single-use systems, where data collection, which was the key challenge, uh, and even creating data collection was, was an enormous achievement for uh, early modern states, um, was done for one specific purpose, and typically just once. Uh, and then you might reuse the data in that context. But what traditional statistical systems really don't capture is the idea that you were, you were sketching of um, a data ecosystem that is a living dynamic ecosystem where new uses can constantly appear from the needs of governments or the desires of citizens or the counter pressures between them to respond to uh, issues that hadn't been foreseen. And of course, modern data systems with uh, the way they are collected and stored and the capacities to analyze them allow you to do that in ways that traditional statistical uh, mechanisms probably didn't. And it's true that if you look at the way public sector statistics are organized, um, the way they are segmented has to do with legal issues and administrative <clears throat> barriers and so on, yep. but also with this idea that we know what we need the data for. So we're going to collect it and analyze it and publish it, and then we can walk away job done. Um, whereas what you were talking about is 
basically the idea of having a constantly curated uh, interlocking set of data that can be repurposed whenever you need it to look at entirely new issues. I think so. I think that's what I'm what I'm what I'm getting at. And I think an illustration of that was I went to this uh, pretty fascinating um, conference a few few years ago called the Nantucket Project in the island of Nantucket here in the United States. And um, Eric Schmidt of Google had this one uh, foundation, I think he was supporting, I don't quote me on it exactly, but where they were creating these uh, infrastructures for small townships to do a better job of running their township. And they did this simulation for the island of Nantucket, which swells in the summertime and shrinks in the, in the, in the wintertime. Conferences like this, it swells, different things go, come and go. And it puts a lot of pressure on the infrastructure because it's an island. So you've got ferries getting there, a small little airport, um, and, and it stresses an infrastructure out in a municipality. Um, the, the citizens, the people, the sewer systems, the parking, the traffic, the police, the, you know, it stresses the infrastructure. And so having this, this data, that it's all this free data that's out there, and they were showing it's all free. It was all these API extractions from different free sources of data. They watched the people coming and going and where they came and when they came. And it was different than what historically they had been planning for. And they were a little late. And so having this ability, it, it was creating a better experience for the island of Nantucket. So if I'm a leader, I'm the mayor or, of Nantucket, uh, I want that information. And it's living and breathing and happening all the time. It's not something that is static. Um, and so it was an interesting concept they were going after. And in my mind, I see that as added into that would be sentiment, would be understanding how the people are doing, what's their sentiment, how are, what's going on, how is it changing things, uh, the children. The, so so that's going to happen. There's going to be more and more empathetic level data, qualitative data versus quantitative data to get into the why factor. And that, that, that's what's out there. This next generation of qualitative AI is going to be the type of toolkit um, that you're going to need as a leader um, because the quantitative type AI is advancing so rapidly. That's what I'm talking about, but qualitative AI. And that way you, you have this, this, this constant assessment going on of your, of your, your citizens in a healthy way, not in a, in a you know, nefarious way, but I just mean in the pure healthy way. Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting point because it challenges conventional ideas of what the policy process is. Um, ideas that, of course, we're wedded to uh, in UNESCO because it's part of our intergovernmental framework. Mm -hmm. uh, it's basically the idea we work with by default is that uh, governments know what they need to deal with and what they're trying to achieve, but they then need technical help in building the knowledge base and uh, defining solutions. Yep. And of course, the way you're framing it points in, in the case of Nantucket in the in the anecdote, but I think it's very generalizable to the fact that well, maybe governments don't actually know what the problem is. Maybe the problem is misdefined. Uh, maybe some very important problems have actually not been noticed at all. So maybe you need to uh, flip around that policy process in terms not so much of focusing on solutions. They matter, of course they matter but not jumping to solutions before you even know what the problem is, 
and keeping open the possibility that the constant process of revisiting uh, well curated yeah. data oh. will actually oh. make new problems. Yeah, for sure. And, and I'm and I'm in no way trying to oversimplify what it takes to govern people. What I'm saying is because you can't oversimplify it, we need better tools as, as leaders. You need qualitative type data analysis, which is that empathy. You know, that's what I'm saying. I, I'm not trying at all to say it's easy. I'm saying it's getting harder. And if we don't focus and create this science of digital anthropology and scale it out, we're going to have leaders that are going to be have massive blind spots. And we've got to look after these blind spots. They're the ones who will know how to govern people. I, I'm not saying there's I could ever coach how to better govern people. But what I'm saying is there's a blind spot in society. There's a blind spot that's getting bigger and bigger and bigger if we don't get the science of digital anthropology uh, to have the ethical and, and, and privacy-driven toolkits to understand why we are being affected the way we're being affected digitally, why our behaviors are the way it is, and arm those leaders who that's what they do with the right kind of information alongside that other kind of data. You need them both, qualitative and quantitative. You need both, and you need it in real time, and you need it all the time. And you need scientists to help you guide that so that as a leader, when you look at protecting your citizens, when you look at protecting your state in where it is, and you look at growing your GDP, and you look about providing an incredible environment for your citizens to live in, or if you're a business for, for your employees to, to work in, uh, it, it's very similar, right? You want to encourage people to want to stay in your company. You want to encourage your customers to stay with your company. You want to encourage citizens to stay in your country. And you want to see that other businesses come into your country to grow your GDP. So you have the same needs as a leader and you need high caliber tools because the world is so sophisticated now and it's changing in real time. Yeah, I think that really underlines what we're trying to achieve uh, through digital anthropology. So I hope yes. that everyone listening to this uh, podcast will stay tuned as the phrase goes to how we uh, develop this through the emerging partnership. And I hope that many of the people listening to this will want to uh, reconnect uh, in due course when we do the events and activities and community building in connection with uh, digital anthropology. Because ultimately what we're saying boils down to two things. They're so general that of course you need a lot of specification to, uh, yeah, for to sure. work, but at least they're clear at the very general level. We need data systems that are much richer in particular because they're not predefined by a specific purpose. We need to rethink data systems in terms of openness to unanticipated needs and purposes. And secondly, uh, we need professionals who can actually work with those open-ended data systems to use them in new ways, ways that weren't um, predefined. It's not about hiring technical expertise to achieve project X. It's about revisiting the data to see which possible projects and challenges, including ones that no one had ever thought of, are actually emerging from the data. So it's a kind of dialogue with the data that is, is something like your neonatal care analogy. In other words, society in all its dimensions doesn't literally talk to us. It doesn't have a voice. It doesn't have a, a mouthpiece. But it's possible to have a dialogue with it through these multiple signals and indicators, all the technical apparatuses that allow us to capture some important things about a society 
and then almost like uh, symptomatology in, in, in medicine, consider how the various disparate indicators fit together to make mm -hmm. an overall picture. So yeah. I, I think that analogy is really very telling. So continuing um, my conversation with James Ingram on, on data issues and following on from everything we were saying in the first part of this podcast on um, new data systems, what they could look like, what kinds of challenges they create for public sector data and for policymaking, I'd like to uh, discuss with James um, some of the recommendations that might follow uh, from this. Uh, because of course, as UNESCO, one of the things we're concerned to do is to bring to the attention of our member states things they should know about. And perhaps when we can also give them some indications as to what to do about the things that we're uh, telling them about. So uh, James, in your opinion, um, and we've already covered this to some extent by, by sketching the digital anthropology ambition, what are the areas where you see the biggest research gaps? I think, um, I think one, one area is really gonna be the, this movement into sentiment. You know, how do we begin to identify and have a system that as you live in, into these different villages, I think I've talked about this before and other times is these digital villages. And it's how we got to this comparison of anthropology and digital anthropology, right? We live in these towns, these villages. And the village itself has a particular characteristic even though everybody in that village does something different, a butcher, a cleaner, a farmer, or manufacturer, there's still a personality in general about that village. And I think when you look at what, look at one of the largest data, you know, tech companies in the world, Google, you see that they're just changing to this distributed, um, this federated learning concept, because they're realizing that people go into these groups. And I think that's where our biggest opportunity is, is people are, are living and breathing in these digital villages. It could be 10, 15, 20, 30 of them, these personas. So really researching how to properly identify villages, digital villages, and quantify that. And now once you have that basis done, like what Google's trying to do to protect privacy with this cookies, that's why federated learning is, is, is where they're headed because then they know that if you go into a group of people, there's a characteristic. So you don't have to know exactly who that person is, but if they go to that village, they're gonna have a certain personality. Maybe like to make it very simple, that village doesn't eat meat, okay? That particular village. So while everyone has very different personalities, that village itself doesn't eat meat. So that gives you a strong indication of a certain characteristics about that village. Uh, whether they're male, female, 20, 30, 80, 10, it, do, it doesn't matter. They don't eat meat. So that protects the privacy of the village. You don't have to know their names, but you know they're not going to buy meat. Um, and I think there's that. So that this, this properly segmenting digital villages, I think, is one area of research that's going to be very important to tie into what some of the bigger innovative companies like Google are doing with federated learning. I think that'll be one, um, because if I'm a governmental leader, those things matter a lot to me. You know, it really matters. Um, I, th I think second past that is is going to be around laws. I, I'm fascinated to to get the dialogue going about law and legislation. 
Um, because laws, you know, how do you govern that? How, how do you create laws around these digital villages, these digital municipalities that come in? And I think that's going to be very interesting to see law and its dialogue and its philosophy that it's working on come into digital anthropology. How can a digital anthropologist help inform these uh, these lawmakers and the practice of law and, and the judicial system? How, how can it do that? And the, the reason I say that is because it, it is one pet peeve of mine, and, and, and I see it, is that like in the United States, um, the homeless population, it's a serious issue, right? And if you're trying to create laws and and help and govern this, this this homeless issue, you know the homeless in the United States that issue is governed by the criminal system, which is odd, you know, not the health system. When most most people who are homeless, it's a mental health issue, not a criminal issue. So the wrong section of government is even overseeing an issue. So how do you have laws? that are governing this and, and how it gets looked at in the criminal system and the healthcare system and, and incorporate digital anthropology. How, how can you do that to help look at a homeless situation? And I'd be very curious about that. So I think law is a second very interesting one that, to pioneer. And then I think um, uh, another one, because it's about protecting privacy, is, is going to be around elections. You know, it's obviously a very sensitive topic. Elections are constantly uh, the source of, of power, of transfer of power. It, it's, it's an essential piece of, of life. And I, I know there's a lot of study around data and how data is getting used to manipulate people or not manipulate people or to educate people or deceive people, you know, whatever side of the fence you're looking at it at. Um, and I'm not picking a, a side. I'm just saying digital anthropology is, is going to be critical to get in there and pioneer how you can look at that. How do you how do you govern and create fair election systems so that the, the, those things work? And I think it's going to be a fascinating topic for for a government and for digital anthropology to get involved in that and and to, to take a look at that. So I think those three have me quite interested in, in, in what we're doing. They are indeed extremely interesting. So we started with the knowledge and then I was going to move to policy, but in a sense, you've already anticipated the answer. Your, your comments on homelessness as a, as a social policy challenge were uh, very explicit in that respect. I was going to ask, what do policymakers need to be paying attention to? Um, I don't know if you want to add anything to that obviously relevant example of a mischaracterization. Well, I, I do. I think what I want to add to it is there's a whole world of mental illness that's shifting because of the digital world. I mean, Tinder, there's things that are happening to us psychologically. Well, well, the homelessness is an overt problem, right? You're homeless because you're not in a home. So it's really an, an obvious issue that a, that a government has to deal with. But I don't know the term for it, but is there a digital homelessness? Is there a side of a person that's so lost that they're languishing because they're so home, they're without a home, they're without a village, they don't belong anywhere? And what psychological problems is that causing? What's happening out there? And how is the psychological world and, and the mental wellness and health world looking at these things? Without scientists equipped with the toolkits 
qualitative type things. I, I mean, I, I'm not trying to be a futurist here, but I, I do think there will be impacts that are akin to homelessness in a digital world. And then people are languishing. And how do we know that's happening? How do we even analyze it without proper tools that protect privacy, that equip branches of science or leaders to think about this? Mental wellness is a responsibility of a government. Whether they want to believe it or not, I believe it is. I think it's responsibility of a family, it's responsibility of a company, it's responsibility of government. We all have to contribute to our mental well-being so we flourish. And there's some fascinating things going on in the world of flourishing and what it takes to flourish as people. And I think they're going to need other science like digital anthropology to help them solve that problem. It's not the end-all be-all, but what it is, it's an emerging field that needs to be sitting at the table like we take about the social issue of homelessness, that alone, I think it can help. But I think what else is emerging out there that a government's got to pay attention to, that health uh, workers have to pay attention to, mental health type thing. And I think that's what I mean by that mapping, by that, by that project-based work that affects us uh, now, you know, that it's real. Yeah, I think that that's a really important point. Um academic specialists and clinicians have been saying this for a long time, but until very, very recently in policy circles, there was basically the assumption, give people prosperity in the GDP sense and the rest will take care of itself. Yeah, I don't think that's true. Realizing it's not that simple. Yeah, I don't think that's true entirely. Yeah, I mean, it's a piece of it. You know, you do need to be, you know, it was it Maslow's hierarchy yeah. of needs, you know, period needs. You know, so I mean, there's the basic first two layers. Yeah, you need that, and um, money tends to help improve security and your personal needs, and, and good food, and a clean place to live, and feel safe. And, and and you know, those. Yeah, but I agree, it's not enough. It, it's not enough to to truly flourish. Yeah, absolutely. And even the traditional social policy vision that. Of course, some people will always be left behind or left out. But if we have enough aggregate wealth, we'll have the resources to help them. And even right. that, which is the progressive version. And, and that's your point, right? You, if you do have enough, how do you help them? Yeah. And so you need these kinds of additional scientists and minds at the table helping these leaders make better decisions. They're not making them for them. It's just to make better decisions. Like you talk about the history of statistics, that was just to help the, the monarchs make better decisions. Yeah. So we started with the private sector, had a long detour through the public sector, and I think it, it's maybe um, uh, apposite to come back to the private sector in, in conclusion. Uh, many of the things that we've been talking about are, as you said, the responsibility of governments. But you also said, interestingly, just a couple of minutes ago, that uh, the mental health of, of staff, of workers, and I presume also of suppliers and customers, for instance, is a responsibility of business. So um, from all, all through the conversation, you've been putting business um, at the heart of the issue uh, with its specific functions and position, which are not the same as those of governments, for instance, or the nonprofit sector. What, what do you see as the key things that businesses, not just data-driven businesses, but perhaps businesses more generally, can do first to get to this kind of improved um, data competence, literacy, and so on that we're hoping to promote 
uh, through digital anthropology, and then secondly, to contribute to the ways in which uh, data is better used for the for the public <coughs> good, including those parts of the public good that business can or should have responsibility for. Yeah, well, I, I guess at the at the risk of uh, tainting the 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 social benefits of digital anthropology and and, and an empathetic data culture because there really are, it, it really is beneficial for society. And I just really want to say that out there. But as anything, um, this type of knowledge done ethically creates an enormous advantage for a business that's ethically uh, listening, that's using empathy. You're going to have less employee turnover. You're going to have smarter and more accurate uh, workers because of how they understand their consumers that they're working to build products and services for. You're going to have a better understanding of your consumer marketplace. So the, the advantages of data are well, well tuned. And I don't even need to sit here and do that. But the advantages of, of empathy-based data are even more profound. Because when you know why someone behaves a certain way, it's a whole nother level of understanding of a person. Being able to predict how they're gonna behave you can do that really accurately with just regular big data. It's it's something else. And but why are they behaving that way? Why is that happening? That's where you're going to really move the needle. And so, is there commercial advantages without question? Um, and it just needs to be done ethically. I mean, you, you can't share your data. That that needs to be our message. Don't share your data if you're a consumer. Don't share it. It's a, it's it's a piece of you, and I think that's why this matters so much. It's like why governments allow you to protect your property. It's an extension of yourself, and this data is an extension of yourself. You could put it all together, and you could almost make a recreation of yourself with your data that's put out there. So governments have a responsibility of protecting their citizens' data and ensuring it. And I think businesses, and that's why the advantage of studying groups of people. And because you can protect people's data, you just know the village behaves a certain way. So I think that there's a very important, important need um, so that as a business, you really are touching your customers' needs through empathy. You really do understand what your customers want to see, what how they want to feel when they interact with your product. How do you want them to to behave when they're when they're when they're in your presence if you're a hotel or an airline or these things. It's really about that. And having science that can help corporations better understand their consumers as well as their employers, employees, are going to create a better business. And a better business performs more efficiently, use of capital more efficiently. And they can so it it, it has a, a, a strong benefit uh, to a business. Um, advertising is improved. And again, I'm not, I don't want to diminish the social issues. And there are groups of people that are very turned off if, a, if an advantage or a science or a technology has a commercial benefit, it, it, it can taint its use. But it's just not, it, we can't be that naive. You know, uh, things that benefit governments or benefit people can be used also by commercial use. So I'm advocating the ethical use of, of the of the empathetic data, ethical use of, of the outcomes. And I think that's why those scientists are important, that they're gonna bring that ethical thinking uh, to, to the table and keep leaders sensitive 
to ethics and empathy. Keep, keep them sensitive. We got we got to stay sensitive in a way that it's something cross our mind, you know, because engineers are not necessarily trained in human behavior, and it can they can start salivating over this predictive capabilities of of big data, and it can get used, you know, like fossil fuels, you know, come on the scene and they're amazing. But then you realize that, well, there's got some serious side effects to fossil fuels. And so then these protection agencies and protection groups come up to help you make sure you're ethically using uh, fossil fuels or, or chemicals or, you know, there's all these different um, comparisons to innovations that have advantages and then can get taken to, to, the, to the dark side. Um, but without taking to the dark side, this type of information is going to be very beneficial to the commercial world, without question. Thank you. Thanks for a great discussion. We've we've precisely um, used our time, our allotted time, in in a very uh, interesting and dynamic way. Is there anything you think important that, for whatever reason, I never prompted you to say that you'd like to uh, add as closing words? I guess I think my, one closing word I would have is to academia. I think the, the, the tech sector is out there um, leading thinking because they can. They have a, they have a way, I, I listened to, to Macron's speech a few weeks ago, um, and, and tech has a, has a, uh, is a tool. And that, that tool, as you saw, can, can get shut off like Twitter did to Trump. And so th there's a lot of power in these tech worlds. And, and the tech is, is out there and I'm an advocate for tech. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. I'm just saying they're out there leading some of the thinking. They're out there leading these things. And academia it, it historically has been the ones that lead thinking, that educate people. But it runs so slow. And we got to get a faster innovation. And I think we're going to be doing that. We're, we're going to go out there. We're going to talk to academia and get them to think of these new degrees, these new science, and, and get them out there. And so I think you have this balance that that academia needs to catch up academia it needs to be creating thinkers modern thinkers that are in touch with how they can contribute because the tech world is contributing larger they're out there contributing to to how things work and, and i'm not saying it's all bad i'm just saying academia needs to catch up in, in my opinion to how some of these thinkers are getting put into the world Thanks. Well, let's hope some of the people who need to hear that message uh, have been listening to this podcast. James Ingram, thanks very much for spending an hour with me talking about data issues in the new digital world and the need for digital anthropology to respond to the data challenges. It was a great pleasure for me. I hope you enjoyed it too. Yes, thank you, John, very much. And, and I appreciate the work that uh, you're doing at UNESCO. And uh, it's really special to be uh, to be working together with you. Thank you for this chance to talk as well. Thank you very much. And thanks to everyone listening to the podcast. And I hope you enjoyed it. And we'll be back with us uh, in probably a couple of weeks for the next episode in the Inclusive Policy Lab podcast series. Thanks and goodbye.